This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Injured at work in a motor vehicle accident or had a fall in a public space? Speak to Your Claim Lawyers, a no-win, no-fee, personal injury claims law firm that specialises in maximising compensation claims for injured people. Call 1-800-YOUR-CLAIM or yourclaimlawyers.com.au. Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan. And it is a pleasure to have your company for another edition of This Is Your Sporting Life. Thanks to Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Hopefully you've been enjoying some of the best interviews that we did last year over the last few weeks. But on this eve of the Australian Open Championship, it's fitting that we celebrate the sporting life of a young lady who became very much in our consciousness when she represented this country. It has been a rocky road for this young lady. Delighted to have Yelena Dokic in the studio with me. Yelena, welcome along. Thank Thank you for having me. Are you excited at this time of the year with the tennis only a day away now and just around the corner? Yeah, very. I already get excited three months before. <laughs> uh, yeah, I um, I live in Melbourne and I live literally across the road from the Australian Open. So, uh, yeah, and I spend a lot of a lot of time there and um, go back and forth and, and at the courts quite often. And uh, you can really feel it uh, about, you know, already two or three months before that the Australian Open's coming. So, yeah, it's exciting. It is one of the truly international sporting events that Australia has every year Mm -hmm. and it gets bigger every year. It's hard to imagine if you went back 10 years ago that it could get to the stage it has now. It's quite remarkable. Yeah, it's pretty amazing what they've done with the place and and just with the Australian Open itself. I've always said it's the best uh, tennis event in the world, the best Grand Slam in the world and um, I still stand by that. So yeah, it's uh, my my favourite event. I love it and even now when I'm not playing anymore and just working and doing commentary and stuff and just being there um, on site every day, it's um, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, tennis is obviously not out of your blood, but is playing tennis out of your blood? No, I love to still get on the court and hit. Uh, I really love to go out there and 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 just hit some balls. So um, I think once you've done it for such a long time, um, there's just something there. Do you aspire to do it at a competitive level again, or are those days behind you? Oh, look, uh, I still think I'm at an age where I probably could do it, um, and and something that. I have thought about um, in in this last twelve months. So, look, I to everything I always say, never say never. Um, so we'll see what the next um, twelve months brings. Obviously, it's been a big few few weeks for me um, mm. with uh, also my book out, or actually a, a few months. But um, and, and also just the whole process with the book took you know over twelve months. So uh, it's been quite a project and and quite a ride. So we'll see what uh, what this year brings. I've got the book in front of me, Unbreakable written with Jessica Halloran. It's a striking cover, a striking photo of Mm -hmm. you on the cover, and uh, I'm sure that that will attract a lot of attention as to what's in the book as well. A lot of people, Yelena, say it's a a bit of a cathartic experience writing about it. Was it something that you felt as though you got off your chest or was it a really difficult thing to write about? It was both. So I felt really good getting it out 
like out on paper while we were in the process of doing it. And at times it was also very difficult, almost reliving um, a, a lot of those bad memories and a lot of the bad things that I had to go through. And there's almost 30 years worth of that. So it was a bit of both. Um, the, the process in itself, I was really focusing on what I wanted in there or, or telling the, the real story and also what was the best way to do that. So I was really in, the, in, in that moment in the process of being really open, really honest and uh, we had a lot of very close calls with deadlines and, and, and going to print that we almost missed. So I was really, really, really a part of the book. And um, every single word and sentence that's in there is my words. And it's the way that I wanted it to be and show exactly what happened. Uh, I honestly didn't think I would feel as good as I do since the book's been out. That was never really my aim with this book. I wanted to get the real story out, and I also wanted to see if my life and everything that I had to go through, if it can help people. And and it looks like it's already done that, and that was the aim. But for actually for it to be almost therapeutic for myself and to feel this good, I didn't think it would. I didn't even think of it that way. But the day that the book came out and that all this kind of came out in the media, uh, I felt so good about it all, and I felt like this huge weight was lifted off my shoulders. And to be honest with you, I, I wish I could have done it earlier and uh, I wish I could have maybe done it while I was playing or 10 years ago. Um, not that I probably didn't want to, it was that I wasn't ready. So yeah, um, I've, I've done it now. I've been ready for the last couple of years and I'm glad I, uh, I've done this. Yeah. How long did it take you from start to finish? It took us about 12 months. And usually from what I've heard, you get a bit more than that. You get maybe two or three years. Uh, we, I and, and obviously the publisher as well had the idea of this coming out um, this November. And, um, yeah, we, we had to work very hard. We had a, a lot of very close um, deadlines, not a lot of time to also, you know, fix things or edit things and, and just go through the book. So we all worked really, really hard. And uh, Jessica, you know, worked incredibly hard. Um, you know, my publisher as well has been amazing. I had to do, you know, a lot of long days and nights. And especially before we went to print, um, I don't think I, I slept a couple hours a day, really, um, just wanting to make sure everything was in there. And then you start questioning yourself towards the end. Did I, you know, put everything in there? Did I, you know, show it to the people the right way? Because it's not so easy to read it from my perspective. I was trying to put myself in the reader's shoes and what, you know, how it would come across to people. I wanted to get, you know, a lot of those important issues out there and across. And, and um, I think we've all done a pretty good job. Yeah. I think you've done a brilliant job from what I've seen of it. You have an extraordinary recall of some of the events of mm -hmm. early in your life. Did you keep a diary or is that just something that has been entrenched in your mind, some of those dreadful things that happened to you early in your life? Uh, it's again, it's it's a bit of everything there because I've got a lot of things that are really clear in my mind. A lot of the bad memories, and uh, for some reason, I think certain things just stick in your mind, whether they're good or bad experiences. And I think that's what it was like for me. A lot of things I've actually kind of heard from people that I don't remember. So I think some things you kind of also, if they're really bad, you kind of block them out. So there's there's been a, a bit of both. But for me, I I remember most of the things, and yeah. Look, it's hard to forget 
a, a lot of those bad experiences that I went through, and obviously I talk about them in the book quite extensively. I go into detail a lot, and that's what I really wanted in this book. But for me, yeah, I remember them pretty clear. I think they, some of the things I went through is so extreme and is so really out there that it's probably pretty hard to, to forget. And, um, yeah, I've got a very clear memory of pretty much everything. When I knew I was going to be sitting down and talking to you uh, for the best part of an hour, uh, so we've got time to explore things, mm-hmm. I thought, well, what we might do is we might talk about the great tennis moments that mm-hmm. you had and then talk about the relationship you had with your father. Mm-hmm. Having read the book, I found it difficult to separate one from the other because everything that you did in tennis is inextricably linked to your father and some of his behaviour towards you. It's hard to separate the two. No, you can't separate the two, actually. A, a lot of people are asking me about some of my best results and my greatest you know, accomplishments on the court. And pretty much 99% of those have you know, a bad memory that goes with it and, and, and what he put me through. So one example is just what we start the book off um, with in, in, in the prologue, and that's Wimbledon 2000 when I was 17 years old and reaching the semifinals and, you know, him thinking it's the worst thing ever and that I'm an embarrassment and not allowing me to come back home and sleep at home. And I had to stay at Wimbledon in the players' lounge trying to sleep on the couch with no money and nothing. So... I think that kind of sets the tone for the book and that's what we that's how we wanted to start the book with that story because I think it just shows what went on you know that that's just you know I think a perfect example so um, some of those results just like that Wimbledon or, or playing the Sydney Olympics and being fourth at the Olympics and a lot of those results he he always kind of did something whether it was in public or whether it was privately so it's pretty hard to find a great on-court memory that's really purely mine without him in it or something happening because even Mm. when I left home he made my life hell I've tried to separate myself from him and and left home at 19 but um, at the end of the day you know people connect you with with your father and what he says you know so it was it's quite difficult I'll touch on that incredible run you had in 2009 but you talked about the Sydney Olympics and that was also a turbulent time Mm -hmm. uh, around that time but the fact that you represented Australia in a home Olympics you had the the uh, name of a lot of countries after your Mm -hmm. name in the draw over various years Mm -hmm. was that one of the proudest moments walking into that Olympic stadium because you marched Mm-hmm. and in front of your adopted home country. How was that? Yeah, definitely. One of the greatest experiences, one of the greatest events and one of the great, greatest moments or, or the way that I felt walking out and representing Australia at the Olympics. And uh, as we all know, I... Um, I, I stopped representing Australia a year later um, at the Australian Open in um, 2001 and my father made a decision um, that I wouldn't be representing Australia anymore. I go into quite a bit of detail about exactly what happened with that and just my feelings on it and, and how against it I was. And that was actually kind of um, a trigger for me leaving home um, a little over a year later uh, because I was so angry um, with him doing that. And I, he put me in the middle of a storm with mm. the media, the public, and everybody else. And the biggest problem was actually that I felt completely different to, to what he did and what he wanted me to do because I actually really loved representing Australia. I loved playing Fed Cup, Olympics, all of those. And just even when I was playing for myself, you know, I loved 
still saying, you know, I'm playing for Australia. And he took that away from me. Um, and it was very difficult because people thought that that's how I felt. And I made a decision and I didn't. I was 17. And I was also very aware of Australia giving me and us, actually, uh, the family, a chance for another life um, or better life because I talk about being a refugee twice and how difficult it was and, and the effects of war and what we had to go through. Um, and Australia also really funded my career. I was the player that, that I was because of Australia and, and, and Tennis Australia in itself, you know, helping me. And he turned his back on that and made me do the same. And, and I was very grateful for having that chance. I went through a lot in the tennis community and faced a lot of racism and discrimination and bullying, but still, um, I I got a chance. You know, I, I still got this chance to to be where you know where I was at the time because of Australia. So I was very angry with him, and it was one of the probably, if not the hardest um, time of my life, and the hardest um, and the worst probably memory. Walking out on court twenty four hours later after he made that decision, walking out on Rod Laver Arena, yeah, yeah the yeah. famous match against Lindsay exactly. Davenport. Exactly, the worst feeling in the world. Yeah. Another one I will also never, never forget. And uh, yeah, he he kind of put me through that. So um, very tough time. And part of the reason it was the worst feeling in the world is because you walk onto the court and you're so used to the adulation of the Australian public, and you were loudly booed. Mm-hmm. It was. A terrible atmosphere. It oh, was it was awful. awful. And it was actually very hard to just think or comprehend the fact that a few days earlier you would, you know, I would be at an event or at a tournament and it would be completely the opposite. And here we are only a few days later and all of this is going on. So it was hard. And I don't think he had any concern what he was putting me through mm. because I was still only 17 and I, I had all this now pressure and dealing with everybody from the media you know to obviously the fans um and the public and, and just everybody in australia yeah one of the really you know incredibly tough times on the court you are incredibly tough we, we learned that from the book and we probably know that anyway given what you've been through you talked about how close you got to taking your own life mm-hmm. what stopped you well, I battled depression for almost 10 years, um, and in the middle of that, um, I got into, yeah, obviously a really bad and negative time because I left home, and it was a few years after I left home, and he, my father continued to make my life very difficult. Um, I almost ruined myself financially. I talk about that in the book. I sent all the money to him, millions, um, when I left home in, you know, in hope of having peace um, and a normal life, which didn't happen. Um, He, you know, threatened to kill me and everybody else that was around me. And the worst one for me, you know, not allowing my younger brother, who was, you know, eight years younger than me, to talk to him for over six years. And all of this kind of came together with other stuff that I talk about in the book and certain people, you know, letting me down and having a really tough time. And, um... Almost, yeah, almost committing suicide. Really dark place. Um, to this day, I say that I actually am not sure what happened to for me not to jump. I talk about where it was on the balcony in Monaco, and um, it was a split-second decision. I could have gone really either way. I, I only had maybe one or two things to look forward to or, or that I could maybe you know, live for, and I tried to think of those things. And 
Was one of them your brother? Uh, one of them was, even though I wasn't talking to him at the time. Mm. But I always felt like I had to protect him and I always felt like I had to be there for him. And it was my partner who I'm still with today um, of almost 15 years. Tim. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, um, yeah, one of the nicest people I have ever come across um, and kindest. And that was it. That was It was the hope of me, you know, talking to my brother again and seeing him again. And, you know, my partner who was there no matter what. And I think that's that's probably the reason why I didn't do it. Um, even though, even going back now to that moment, um, yeah, it was, it was really close. It was really close that, you know, you just... I say a couple centimeters this way or that way could have mm. gone really um, because you're, you're in such a space where um, I felt like I was responsible for everything. I was blamed for everything by my father. I was made to feel worthless for years. I lost my confidence, self-esteem, everything. And when you're in such a bad space like that, um, you're really vulnerable to what you might do. And that's that's where I was in, in, in that moment. We'll explore that a little bit more when we come back after the break. Yelena Dokic is my very special guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. More with Yelena after the break. Listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donigan. On the eve of the Australian Open, a very special chat with Yelena Dokic. How did a little girl born in the part of the world that you were born in come to be in Australia? In fact, it could have been somewhere else. It could have been Germany looking at the book. Yeah, it could have been. Uh, but it also could have, I could have just stayed there uh, with the difficulties that we had. So, yeah, look, I was I was born in Croatia, or that was Yugoslavia at the time, but part of um, Croatia. And, uh, yeah, in 83, but the war erupted in 19. 1991, uh, when I was eight years old, and um, we, yeah, we had to leave literally overnight. I talk about that in a book, and I explain what that looked like. And um, yeah, it was it was a tough time, you know. Um, I talk about seeing my first dead body when I was eight years old, and you know, being threatened that me and my brother were going to get thrown off a building. So um, yeah, very quickly, I think you grow up and you grasp, you know, the concept of war and, and what it's about. So yeah, we left, um, went to Serbia. We were there for three years. Very difficult conditions and um, and then uh, I was supposed to um, go to Germany I got offered a, a great contract and sponsorship with Adidas but um, we couldn't get visas because um, Serbia got all of these you know travel restrictions and we couldn't leave the the country or certainly not for Germany so um, yeah we ended up in Australia because um, my father had an auntie in Sydney and uh, and we ended up here that must have been an incredible culture shock to you though because you didn't speak the language yeah it was it was it's a very different you know part of the world compared to you know where I was born so uh, the language even though I learned it pretty quickly um, obviously is a bit of an or was a bit of an issue for the rest of my family or my brother learned quickly but my parents you know had trouble but it was um, it was it was a culture shock yeah it's very obviously different the mentality is different it was difficult it was a difficult adjustment um, but I'm also I think for my father he was the one that struggled with it I um, I talk about his difficulty um, with life in general when he came to Australia I think he really didn't want to leave, you know, his his home, and uh, that's where also um, he got a lot worse towards everyone, but obviously especially me, um, with with the abuse and his drinking and everything. I'm sure you've been asked this question a hundred times, a thousand times over the years. Why did the family stay together under those circumstances? Why didn't your mother pack you up and get out of there? Well, I think the only person that could have made a decision, I think, is her, um, and she. 
uh, had her reasons for it. Um, she says that um, she didn't want me and my brother to grow up with our parents because she did, especially without a father, and she um, really suffered because of that. And I can understand that to a certain degree, but also I do have some trouble um, understanding some of you know the decisions that you know she was making and I've got some mixed feelings obviously about her role in everything and her support um, and she never interfered uh, whatever he did she thought was right and that he was doing the right thing and I would have been kind of you know okay with that but I struggled with the fact that once I left home when I was 19 she didn't support that at all she was actually wanting me to come back to my father and wanting me to come back into this you know abusive situation this very you know ugly life I'm sure everyone asks you about your relationship with your father mm-hmm. now what's mm-hmm. your relationship like with your mother um, with my mother we talk and um, we I, I got to see her we've had probably a few tough years and uh, we've had to have those tough conversations but um yeah look we we talk and I, and I see her if if you know anything were to happen I would be there of course for her but um uh yeah I I, I just don't agree with some of the stuff obviously in her role and things and I've told her that she knows that so we've kind of just you know moved on it was what it, what it was and when we've um moved on in our relationship and now we have one now it's well documented, um, even before the book, the, the physical abuse that you got, but it, it goes into greater detail in the book. You can hide bruises, and you talk about wearing long sleeves and hiding bruises, but you can't hide the mental scars, or, or, or people don't see the mental scars. They can occasionally see the physical scars. How much of it was mental abuse as much as physical? Oh, it was both, and and as bad as physical abuse is for me, the emotional side of it or, or the mental side of it and the verbal abuse that I was going through and I talk about that as well was very difficult and it was extreme you know some of the names that my father would call me on a daily basis from when I was you know even 10 or 11 years old um, it was very difficult for me it was very very hurtful and even though he started you know physically abusing me from when, when I was six years old for me very often um, all the other kinds of abuse so obviously emotional and verbal was um, at times actually maybe even even more difficult and um it was so hard when you're fighting and you're working so hard and you already at 11 or 12 know that you're giving it your all and um, you get called all these horrible names and it's just it was just very hurtful and it, and it, it breaks your spirit really um, I left home being you know a, sh- a shadow of a person that I probably should have been um, and that probably I am today and um, yeah he took a lot of that obviously confidence belief self-esteem that I you know had or should have had as a person and as a player and he kind of took that away and I talk about you know him really breaking me down but not just physically but actually you know on the inside I felt just really beat down you know but by, by, by him constantly making me feel you know worthless and um, just how difficult that is I think it's maybe hard for some people to understand that are not in that situation um, and that's why and uh, that was another reason why I wanted to be so open in this book and explain these things so that people um, get a better understanding of what that looks like. I wanted to read one particular quote from the book to you. Mm-hmm. The blow to my head fells me, and as I lie on the floor, he starts kicking me. He kicks me near my ear, and my vision blurs. I pass out, but when I come to, he makes me stand again. My head is aching. For the next round of torture, he makes me stand still, then he kicks me in the shin with the sharp toe dress shoes he's wearing. People would read that 
and find it difficult to believe that someone mm-hmm. who hated you mm-hmm. could do that, mm-hmm. let alone someone who loved you. Mm-hmm. I think it was common knowledge in the tennis world that these sort of things were going on. Did the tennis world do enough to protect you at the time? Well, look, uh, the question has been for weeks now, obviously since the book's come out, is did people know? And I think obviously the answer is some people did know. Um, Some people saw it firsthand. Um, I don't blame anyone and I don't, you know, want to point fingers. I don't think that's the right thing to do. And and I understand people not wanting to get involved in maybe something that's so extreme, so personal, behind closed doors, private. Um, But I think there are certainly two things that could have been done better. First one is the media, because I feel like he was made fun of and he was a joke, as we know, and a headline. And it really, um, it was baffling to me. I I didn't understand, and I still don't understand it to this day, why it was funny um, to people. Why did they make fun of this person who, you know, also in the last few years before I I left home and he got off the tour, was, you know, had these unbelievable outbursts at Wimbledon, US Open, Australian Open, Birmingham, as we know. And they all also had interviews with him. He gave so many interviews to all of them, and they interacted with him. They saw him very often. He was drunk. He was aggressive. And actually, if if we were living today with all this technology and phones and cameras, I mean, so much more would come out. But I didn't understand why it was funny. And the second thing was that I did leave home when I was 19. So even if you didn't know of, let's say, all all the abuse that was going on, you saw who I, w- I was living with and, and who I had to deal with on a daily basis for a very long time. So I didn't understand why a whole lot of, let's say, people weren't there to support me, I think. I don't want to blame people. It, it is what it is. Um, I think people had also a wrong picture of who I was and what my career and my life was about. Still, even though I came back to Australia a few years after I left, I was embraced by, by everyone, but it still looks like there was a bit of judgment there on me leaving Australia. I think going forward, I think it's about making sure that this doesn't happen ever again. Because whether we want to admit it or not, it still happens in tennis, in sport, in, in everyday life. So um, I think it's about seeing what can be done and, and making sure this doesn't happen again. And if it does, that people know what to do. When something like this happens, uh, people say that they tend to feel like they're the only one in the world that's happening to, even though they know that they're not. Have people reached out to you since this has become public? Have, have you had people saying to you, now I know that there is someone else who's been through what I've been through? There's been more people from, I guess, everyday life, you know, at my events, um, at my book events and, and, and all my media events. Um, and they've People have kind of been coming up, some people even crying, which has been quite emotional, um, about, you know, saying they're going through the same thing or they've been through the same thing and, and that the book, you know, has given them inspiration and that it's given them courage to leave or, or do something about it if they're still in that situation. So it's been really good to hear that. I said before in this chat, I wanted to talk to you about some of the great tennis moments you've had. So let's do that when we come back on the other side sure. of the break. Yelena Dokic is my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. And don't forget, you can find out some more from Tobin Brothers serving families across Victoria for 80 years. More with Yelena on the other side of the break. Yeah! You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donigan. 
And what a pleasure it is to have Yelena Dokic in the studio for This Is Your Sporting Life for Topin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. We've talked about the difficult times, Yelena. Let's talk about the good times. And you mentioned 2009 and the mm-hmm. giant killing run that you had. If the atmosphere in that match against Lindsay in 2001 was a bit mm-hmm. toxic on Rod Laver Arena, it was an atmosphere that I have really experienced when you were on your run. That was something. It was something, yeah. And it was actually quite emotional. People don't realise that um, playing that second round match on Rod Laver Arena was the first time I was back on Rod Laver since that Davenport match in 2001. So such, you know, different matches and contrasts of, you know, the reception that I received. So, um, yeah, it was quite a run, but um, more so it was just the reception that I was getting. I was going into every match not just excited, you know, to play or to win, but it was just the the amazing reception. I remember after the fourth round match that I won going into the quarterfinals, that really long match, 9-7, you know, in the third. Mm. And I remember that match point and it's, again, one, we've talked about memories and certain things sticking, you know, with you, whether they're good or bad. And this is one of those good ones. Like, I got goosebumps after that match. It was... Um, one of the best, you know, crowd experiences that I've ever had. Even before, let's say, I left Australia, we talked about, you know, how um, uh, how popular I was with the Australian public then. Um, but this was probably even bigger. This was, um, yeah, bigger and better. So it was a pretty amazing experience. I reckon the roar that went up when you won that third round match, mm-hmm. having called many matches on Rod Laver Arena, having been lucky enough to do that, I can remember the roar when Novak won that final and Mm -hmm. took nearly six hours. I think they were comparable. Oh, really? Yeah, I think (laughs) it's as loud as I've ever heard that place. Yeah, that was um, my my third and fourth round wins were, yeah, definitely one of the loudest ones I've ever had. So um, I know that a lot of people have come up to me that were in the stadium, even even some commentators saying, like, this is, we've never seen anything like this or heard anything like Mm. this. So, yeah, it's um, sometimes a little bit hard when you're in the moment and you're playing and, you know, sometimes to see the difference. But it was loud because I... I, um, it's, I think, quite difficult when you're in a match and all the adrenaline and everything that you get goosebumps by, you know, the crowd's reaction. And I had that um, in 2009. Yeah. What about Wimbledon? That must also hold a special place in your heart. Making the last four there it mm. was a, an incredible achievement at yeah, such a young age. Yeah, even though I've got, we've talked about the bad memory behind that semi-final. Yeah. Um, and I played the quarterfinal the year before that, beating Hingis, um, which is still one of the biggest upsets in you know women's tennis ever. Um, yeah, I do. I do. And I love Wimbledon. Uh, still, that run or those runs that I had at Wimbledon and, and other events and, and, you know, at the end of the day, I was four in the world. Um, I still feel like even there was a, a lot going on behind and, and he always did something to make those moments feel kind of less special. Um, I still remember them. You know, I still have those those feelings and I still remember those things. And at the end of the day, um, you know, I still fought very hard for that. I, 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 you know, trained and fought my heart out for years, especially dealing with him. So, yeah, I, I've still got those those great matches and those, you know, good good feelings there. Yeah. And you must have had great feelings in the matches sometimes, even though you were battling with everything that was going on. Was there a bit of sanctuary in when you got on and the chair umpire said, players ready, play, and the period of time that elapsed between then and when they called game, set, match? Were Mm. you in your own little tennis world there? Were you able to block out everything that had been going on? No, it was actually hard. A lot of people asked me that. And did I find kind of... um 
uh, the tennis court is an escape, but not really because everything was kind of going on because of tennis. Yeah. And I had to be, you know, very focused on the court and, and um, he put a lot of pressure on me. I never knew what was coming after the match because I talk about very often having, uh, you know, good training sessions and um, winning matches. But, um, you know, I would still get punished for it and, and still at times wouldn't be good enough. I remember matches where I would win 6-1, 6-1 and I remember I would still, you know, get physically abused because maybe my serve wasn't you know that good that day so yeah uh, it still was very difficult to go out there because I went out there very often in fear and under a lot of pressure so it didn't feel like a place where I can escape but I loved tennis even in those difficult moments so I think um, my huge I think love and this passion that I had for tennis ultimately got me through a lot of difficult moments what was your best moment What's the moment that your mind's eye turns back to? Um, I've got a few. I've got, I've got a few, but again, that 2009 Australian Open, I think. And also being a part of the Sydney Olympics and walking out on that stadium in the opening ceremony, that was that was special. So um, I think probably those two. Those two moments are probably the greatest. Let's take two. our final break. When we come back on the other side of the break, I... I'm going to talk about something that will bring a smile to your face, okay. and that is a man you mentioned before, Tim, okay. your sure. better half. Mm-hmm. Our final segment with Yelena Dokic coming up on the other side of the break on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donigan. Our final segment with Yelena Dokic on a very special edition of This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Yelena, I mentioned your better half and you mentioned mm-hmm. it before. Tin, mm-hmm. you've been together, what, 14, 15 years now? 14 and a half, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's the love of your life? Yes. Well, I think so. 14 and a half years. <laughs> <laughs> if I haven't made up my mind until now, then we've got a problem. <laughs> Was it difficult to trust him? Was it difficult to trust him? another man after everything that you'd been through? Yeah, someone actually asked me that for the first time a few days ago and um, I haven't had that issue, you know, even though I went through everything that I went through with my father, I haven't you know, had that problem and someone asked me, do you, do you, do you trust men or yeah, I absolutely do, I don't have a problem but I don't know, I think I was just kind of lucky to be able to find him so early on in my life especially when I was going through a lot of the bad experiences and um, yeah, look, we've been together ever since and we've never even had a major fight ever really um, we just really get along so well and um, understand each other so well and um, yeah if there's a highlight in all of this and all these bad things it's it's him if there's one good thing that's come out of it. Well I say blood's thicker than water was the relationship tested at all because you had some difficult times with Borna who was your mm-hmm. coach yes. his brother mm-hmm. um, and at one stage you say in the book that he was ripping you off Financially, yeah, it was a tough relationship. Uh, obviously, because he's you know Tin's brother, and uh, we gave him a, a lot of chances, and we talk about that relationship in the book and just how hard it was because I looked at him and and almost like an older brother um, after I left home. It was a very difficult situation and very different difficult moment for me, and he kind of um, you know left and, and left both of us really. Um, so yeah, look, it, it is what it is. We've we've given him chances. We know we've done everything we can. At times, um, did you know? Ditin and I kind of talk about it, and and 
maybe did did we or did even he push for him a little bit more because he was his brother absolutely and and you know I, I talk about that in the book it's no secret so um, but we've done at the end of the day all we can do both of us him and me and uh, again I think just like in the situation with my father and the whole the whole thing there's nothing there's no regrets there you know at the end of the day we've done it all. we've done everything we could we've given someone someone you know multiple chances and and we everything we've done has come from a good place so uh, you know there's no reason for us to to fight about that and um, it's just about you know learning I think from your mistakes and experiences and everything that we've gone through we, we talk about today still still learning you know after 15 years of going through everything of course you you're learning every day so um, we try never to take anything out on each other you know and he's gone through obviously very difficult moments with me with my father and he was threatened you know himself that he was gonna kill him and, and things like that and we had security guards at tournaments and and things um that we just had to do and, and he was he's the same age as I am so we were still both very young it's not like he was maybe five or six years older so that maybe he had a different perspective and more experience so we feel like we've kind of grown together gone through everything together and uh, we try not to let other people and, and you know problems that come up um, interfere in our relationship Your relationship is going to involve motherhood by the sound of it at some stage down the track and that's a private matter so mm-hmm. I'm not asking you about no, that's that okay. What about your relationship with your father where do you see your relationship with him in the coming years well I think actually you mentioning motherhood and my father it's kind of actually a bit connected why I say that is that um, uh, look I've tried to reconcile with him over the years and I've given him I think plenty of chances to kind of change and Almost to kind of you know just say sorry for the things that he's done. That's all he would have really taken, and and let's just move on and try and have a relationship. Has he ever done that? Has no, he ever said sorry? No, no. And I find it difficult to have a relationship with someone that shows absolutely no remorse for anything that has gone on, and not just the the abuse that he put me through, but just for breaking up the whole family, which was really hard, I think, on everyone. So for me, looking forward, I've done it for so many years, tried to give him a chance that I got to a stage, I think, when I. T- when I turned 30 a few years ago and I said to myself almost like well I can't keep on doing this because you got to move forward I've got you know this second part of my life that I want to make completely the opposite to what the first part was because I went through almost 30 years of you know tough times um, and a lot of difficult years or mostly all the 30 years were were, were so hard so I said to myself I'm not going to go through you know, things like that again, if I don't have to, and certainly not put myself, you know, in that position. And he just doesn't need to be a part of my life because I've done everything. You know, I um, don't feel um, at all bad for going back a few times. I talk about that in the book and trying to have a relationship with him when he clearly can't change and doesn't, you know, want to do anything about it and make an effort. So for me going forward and having my own, hopefully, family, um, I think it will, you know, become even more clear that, you know, I actually need to keep these kinds of people, you know, as far away from me and my family as possible. I don't, you know, need this in my life. And um, now that I'm close to, you know, hopefully having my own kids, I just realize just what we, what he put me through and how not normal it is. You know, you said at one stage someone that might even hate you wouldn't do that to you, let alone your parents. And I mm. think you, that's so right. So he um, just really, you know, shouldn't be close to to me and my family at all. Yeah. 
It's been very difficult to talk about some of the things that you have spoken about, but the one thing I've loved about our chat is the times that you've had a smile on your face. Mm -hmm. And it was something that we probably didn't get to see a lot of Mm -hmm. because of all the reasons that you mentioned when you were on the tennis court. Mm -hmm. We who look from afar, whether you're in the commentary box or whether you're sitting in the stands, sometimes think you know someone, but you don't. No, I don't think so. I think that especially in, in, in sport, but but in tennis um, as well, it's such an individual sport. So I think people think what they see out on the court, that's the person. And I, I, I don't think that's the case, especially that wasn't the, the case with me. And especially while I was with my father, I always had this really you know tough look on my face. And, and I, I had to because I was, you know, had this battle on my hands. But even then, after I left home very often on the court, I would be people would, would actually come up to me now and say, I can now see why at times you were so absent and you were sad and you could see that on your face and in your eyes and um, I think that's actually true because I've watched some matches and I can see that especially knowing what was behind it and and battling depression for so long Um, so I don't think people really knew the real me because I'm actually quite the opposite and um, um, I'm so goofy Um, (laughs) like you know off the court and, and in my you know, private time and with people that know me and I'm completely the opposite on, on the court. So um, it's hard for me to connect actually those two people on the court and off the court. You know, I turn into this completely different, serious person. So, yeah, hopefully this book maybe put a bit more light on who I am. <laughs> it certainly does. Yeah. The name of the book is Unbreakable and I just want to read the last couple of lines mm-hmm. of the book to end our chat. Um, as you now know, my story hasn't been a fairy tale, but I don't want anyone to feel sorry for me. I'm luckier than most. Healthy, no longer a victim, I am a survivor, and I will always find a way. And you have. Mm. I think that's a perfect ending to the book, actually. And uh, we were looking at what to put in that epilogue or in the, in, in the last part of the book as kind of a conclusion really to it all and I worked very hard on that part of the book um, making sure to put everything in there and, and for a lot of people to t- what, what we can take out of my story and what I can actually take out of everything that has happened and um, yeah I said to Jess look you got to put two or three things in there that I want and then we got to see how we're going to you know put it in as in sentences and, and paragraphs and and the first thing was I don't want people to feel sorry for me you know I appreciate like I said the media coming up and apologizing that's really nice but it's about you know I've survived I'm not a victim of this and you know I've come out of this you know stronger and at the end of the day I'm still so lucky um, you know health obviously being here today and being healthy um, also not just surviving my father but depression and almost committing suicide because I very easily could have not been here so I don't take that for granted every day that I'm here I'm grateful for you know you start looking at little things like you know today being such a beautiful day you know or just little things like that I really appreciate so I know I'm lucky to be here and that's what it's about you know and I really do think um that oh I hope so I don't want to jinx it but I really do think I would you know always find a way out of out of problems and I would find a solution after so many times sitting in the commentary box talking about you it's been a pleasure to sit in the mm-hmm. studio and talk with you mm-hmm. for the last hour or so it's an amazing story Yelena Dokic thank you so much for your time mm-hmm. and we'll see you at Melbourne Park yeah, over the next thank you for the night. chat thank you Yelena Dokic a very special guest on This Is Your Sporting Life and uh, next week we'll go back to some of the best of our 2017 interview so I hope you can join us then same time same place right here on 1116 SEN Melbourne's home of sport 
Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semi finals, all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply.